So what's this one called? Olivetti? Olivet Gardens, I think. Olivet. I love it. So we wanted to kick off today with an exploration of the little town of Colma in California. Kind of see across the hills. And there's a, a couple, it looks like another graveyard right across the way. Uh, and it's, yeah, there's just graves everywhere. As far as the eye can see. Dead people. It's a town just outside of San Francisco that appeared back in 1924 and was actually founded as a necropolis. That's right. Drum roll. A city of the dead. So in this town where the dead outnumber the living 1,000 to 1, we managed to track down someone with a pulse who could tell us a little bit about where we were. Okay. Yeah, so if you can just give us your name. My name is Richard Riquetta, and I'm the uh, secretary and docent here at the Coma Historical Association. We found Richard in a small museum tucked in between two of Colma's 17 cemeteries. It's a funky little place filled with all sorts of items that tell the unique history of Colma. Records of every human, cat, and dog buried there, photo albums, books, and free bumper stickers with the town's motto. It's great to be alive in Colma. Also mannequins for no apparent reason. Now at this point, you probably have two questions circling through your head. How the heck did we end up in a place like Colma? But also, how did a place like Colma even come to exist? Well, I can answer the first question. What's the answer then? We ended up in Colma because we're a bunch of weirdos. I actually can't deny that. We asked Richard the second question. How does this place even exist? San Francisco is only about 49 square miles. So uh, they started uh, when the gold rush came. Uh, People died, disease, a lot of diseases in the mid-1800s. So there was a lot of cemeteries that, uh, sort of informal cemeteries. Then uh, the formal cemeteries came into being in the late 1800s. And uh, they were mostly located out in the, uh, sort of the Richmond Sunset District. Well, as the city started moving west, the property became more valuable. So in 1900, uh, they uh, banned burials in the city, so there were no more burials. Uh, there were cemeteries that were out here, so people began burying them out here. Well, about 1911, first decade of the 20th century, uh, they actually sent eviction notice and said, okay, now you have to move all the bodies out. We need the land for the living. We want for housing and whatever. So uh, through a series, I mean, it took them something like 30 years because of lawsuits, a series of uh, votes, by, uh, by the people. Finally, the final vote said, okay, yes, we want them out. So then they started actually moving them out in the late 1930s till about 1941. Wait, wait. So they just dug up a bunch of people that were buried in San Francisco? Yep. That seems crazy. Well, from the sound of it, they made a calculation. They decided that land inside the city was just worth too much to be left for dead. <coughs> That still seems extreme. So they just started carting all of the bodies from San Francisco into Colma. How? It seems like there'd be some crazy logistics involved in something like that. Yeah, not only are you digging up graves and moving bodies around to different cemeteries, you've also got to grapple with all the tombstones and monuments that are sticking out of the ground. Listen to this. If a family was still around and they had $10, they could move the stone out to the cemetery of their choice. If they didn't have, of course, a lot of these were pioneers, didn't have families or couldn't afford it, uh, they were moved out and they were put in what's called mass grave sites. So that's how Colma got literally hundreds of thousands of bodies. So is that like still a thing today? Are people still being carted out to Colma? Yeah. 
land is so valuable in San Francisco that they're building more cemeteries in Colma, in addition to crematoriums to capitalize on a bunch of unused vertical building space. Can you give us a sense for how how much land or how much how many people are buried here? In- okay, well, we always like to say there's a million five hundred below ground and about fifteen hundred above ground, so the population is about fifteen sixteen hundred. Uh, maybe can be disputed a little bit, uh, the, the below ground, but there are quite a few. And then there's about two square miles of yeah. the incorporated town. And this is where I want to insert one of the big questions of this episode for me. Who is all of this for? Uh, what do you mean? Well, when it comes to after-death accommodations... Ben, is that even a real term? Definitely not. Anyway, when it comes to burial and body preparation after death, who is it for? And why do we do it the way that we do? On that dark note, <laughs> let's get started. I'm Philip Russell. I'm Shira Crush. I'm Ben Thorpe. And I'm Evan McLonis. What are you listening to? You are listening to the Looncast. We started looking around at all of the ways burials handled in the U.S. and found a pretty unique one. Sure, are we recording already? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's probably smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Katrina Spade, and I'm the founder and director of the Urban Death Project. We found Katrina during some death-related hashtag research on Twitter. Hashtag body bag. Hashtag clean up on aisle four. Hashtag what is that smell? Hashtag check, please. Yeah, so... Let's see. The Urban Death Project is an alternative to cremation and burial that uses the process of composting to turn us into soil. That's the easiest and quickest way to say it. Um, More broadly, it's uh, both a system to care for our dead and also a proposal for a new type of architecture for our cities where we can honor our deceased and bring nature back into our lives and our cities and celebrate decomposition and decay, which is something culturally we're pretty afraid of. Katrina's a modern-day death revolutionary. Surprisingly, she looks nothing like the Grim Reaper or Jack Kevorkian. She's a hip 30-something with a sharp haircut, a big smile, and really, really cool shoes. You might think that her infatuation with death came from watching too many Tim Burton films as a young lady, But the actual story goes like this. Well, I was in graduate school at the University of Massachusetts Amherst for for architecture. So there's like four parts to this. One is I was in grad school for architecture. Two is I had, and still have, but I had two very young children who were growing up before my very eyes. Three, a friend of mine told me about livestock mortality composting research that was happening in the US. And four, I started to be curious what would happen to my body when I died. And the two small children plays in, if you're wondering, because um, there's this moment when they're little where you can literally see them growing older. They're just like from baby to toddler or whatever, like day to day, they're they're older. And I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm growing up that fast. And then kind of hit me at 32 that I was going to die someday. So at 32 years old, she started looking into the options, if you're religious or not, if you live in the city or out in the country, and what that all meant for the burial process. 
She found that there weren't really many options and that conventional burial and cremation lacked meaning. Yeah, the idea was I initially was thinking, oh, what would I do with my body when I died? And I thought, well, I'll probably be cremated and then have my friends and families like spread my ashes at the ocean because it's so beautiful and like nature is so present, you know, and I was thinking how beautiful that would be. And, um, and started to just think about the fact that many people who die in cities are brought out of the city when they die, either to be buried in a natural cemetery or just a sort of cemetery on the outskirts, because that's where many of them are now, or cremated in their ashes brought somewhere, often places that sort of have a connection to nature. Katrina was raised in rural New Hampshire on a dead-end dirt road. Her family composted, they had animals. But at 18 years old, she moved to the city, became an urbanite, and as much as she grew to love city life, she found that something was conspicuously absent from urban culture. Decomposition. It was like half of the life cycle was completely neglected. And as much as she loved the idea of her loved ones spreading her ashes out in nature, that kind of conflicted with her new roots in the city. So the problem with conventional burial is, and by the way, conventional burial is when a body is typically embalmed. That's when you're blood and body fluids are drained and embalming fluid, which is made up of formaldehyde, is pumped into your body. And that staves off the natural process of decomposition for some weeks or, or months, but it doesn't prevent it altogether. But that's just the way it is in our culture. And during her research, she discovered some staggering statistics. I like these ones. For example, we bury enough metal every year to build a new Golden Gate Bridge in U.S. cemeteries and enough wood to build 1,800 single-family homes. And then maybe the most disgusting fact is that we bury eight, U- eight Olympic-sized swimming pools full of embalming fluid each year in U.S. cemeteries. Wait, what? All that in one year? Yeah, and presumably those numbers are only going to get higher and more staggering as time goes on and the population continues to rise. From a business perspective, if you look at the funeral industry, it's really, it's bizarre as well. You've got a cemetery, which is a certain amount of land, and then then plots are sold to people forever. There's no other thing like that where you're like, this piece of land will be yours forever after you die, obviously, and then just like forever onwards. Unsatisfied with conventional burial and the limited options when it came to death, Katrina set out on a quest to reimagine the process and the ritual of laying our loved ones to rest. And so, the Urban Death Project was born. When designing the system, she asked questions like, what do we need as people who are grieving? And what do we want as people who are going to die someday? Her conclusion rested with the sole fact that the human experience is the number one thing. So yes, the system that she's creating turns bodies into compost, and that's awesome. But what's even more important, she says, is that the human experience, the ritual that's going along with the process, is paramount. So with that in mind, and because I and many people believe that we've lost touch with caring for our dead, um, one of the things, so I'll I'll sort of describe the building. Uh, In the building, you have a shrouding room first and foremost. So bodies will be received by the funeral directors at at the facility. Um, They could be cooled and refrigerated for up to two weeks or so, waiting for the family to arrive. And on the day of the ceremony, you'd have friends and family, the closest couple of friends and family most likely, could join the body in the shrouding room to wash and prepare the body. So then you have um, a three-story core in which the decomposition process occurs. And it's designed with ramps winding around that core. And that's in part because the living use their own energy to carry the dead to the top of that core. 
and then are welcome to as much as they want to participate to actually cover that body into in wood chips at the top um like having you know that it becomes part of the ceremony and part of the ritual then when you say goodbye and then over the next four to six weeks the body decomposes and um settles in the core and so what one of the things that excites me there is that you have the living getting to participate very closely and, and not, not to say that that is easy it's not easy but i think it does it will help the grieving process The other really cool thing about the Urban Death Project is that there is room within the model for the individual centers to be completely unique to the place or the culture that they are established in. She describes it kind of like a library, where they're all part of the same system, they use the same mechanisms and offer basically the same services, but they can look different depending on where they are. What I get most excited about is that I don't know what the gardens will look like. I can imagine a super modern building with a, just a vertical wall. You know, and that and that's that's where the compost is going in that building, and then another one that's sort of lush and ornate and has an English tea garden or something like that. So, yeah, I really like the idea that they could truly look different from place to place. Um, I mean, or maybe one just has a grove of of trees, you know, really simple or something. One of my favorite visions Katrina had was that you would have this whole community garden growing from the compost of the people who had lived in the area. You could take a walk around this garden and be. I don't know, in communion with all these different lives there. That's the neat thing happening, where you have life literally coming out of death. Right. It's a community space where you can be close to these natural processes. But not in a super morbid way. Hold tight, loons. We'll be back after the break. Looncast is brought to you by Inaudible.com. Because what we've heard from advertisers so far is... Well, nothing. We haven't heard anything. Inaudible, because it's hard to hear what isn't said. So after talking to Katrina, we figured it would be important to talk to someone from inside the system. So a mortician or a funeral director? That is correct. But we didn't have a lot of luck. Hello? Hello! This is the Looncast, and we wanted to know how much it would cost to get five minutes with the body. Hello? Hello? Are you still there? Hello? Dude, phrasing. Any idea why we got shot down so many times? Well, beyond some of the awkward questions we asked, I think it's fair to say that there's some stigma around the funeral industry. Really? Why? I mean, a lot of it might just be how little thought we put into the industry as a whole. End-of-life preparation can be really expensive, and if you haven't thought about it or prepared for it in any way, it can be really jarring. Plus, it's pretty easy to think of morticians as these hunchbacked Igor types cutting open bodies in the basement somewhere. Morticians are pretty much stuck in crime shows and horror movies, so it's easy to get these kinds of images. We were really surprised when we visited the Mortuary Science Department at Wayne State University and found everyone so normal. One of them even agreed to talk to us. Working with human remains is definitely a part of our job, but it's only a small part of our job. Most of our job is dealing with the families that are grieving a loss. This is Mark Evely. He's the director of mortuary science at Wayne State University. When we sat down to talk to him, it was really from the perspective of, so what is it that morticians do to bodies? But once we started talking to him, it became clear that this really wasn't half of his job. People don't realize that 
until they go through it themselves that how much human interaction that there is. You know, there's a lot of trust that people place in funeral directors and entrusting their loved ones to a funeral home and we take that very, very seriously. Yeah. And you have to be able to communicate well with people, you have to have empathy with people, you have to have patience, and you have to be understanding. So, not basement dwellers that like to cut people open? No. The way he explained it, a lot of their work is about meeting people's needs, whatever they are. And they're trained to do that in a number of ways. One of those that we found particularly interesting was that they had to be trained in the funeral rites of several different religions. Huh. Why would they have to be trained in different religious practices? I don't know, dummy. I'll let Mark handle this one. We teach, um, you know, not not only on the preparation side, but on the, the services and ritual side for many different cultures and religions from, uh, you know, Protestantism, Catholicism, Buddhism, uh, Islam. I mean, we, we teach many different um cultural and religious perspectives on death. Huh. And so how do, how do you approach a funeral differently if it's Buddhist or Islam? Well, the, the morning rituals are different. The body preparations are different. The funeral services are different, um, you know, between burial and cremation and just the different way that the deceased is prepared and the, the rituals surrounding the, the death and final disposition. So you are able to teach a wide array of practices um, to fit with any faith? We do. We do, um, from, a, from a technical standpoint, um, just the, the different rituals and things like that, and then also from a practical standpoint, we have a, a religion class where we have members of uh, the clergy for about ten different religions come in and and talk about the practical aspects and applications of um, funeral rites and their faith. Huh. Now, so do you have to also, I mean, is it important for the students to also know about, you know, the beliefs about what happens after death in each religion? I mean, is it? It, it is because, you know, like I said before, it's important for funeral directors to form a bond and be able to communicate and earn the trust of the families that they serve. And in order to do that, one needs to be informed about what that family's beliefs are because that will dictate how you approach certain things. It will dictate how you say certain things. And uh, it's just important for the family to know that you've cared enough to find out what's important to them in their faith. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so this kind of takes us back to our conversation about who is it for? Who do we do all these things for? From a funeral director's perspective, I think it's fair to say that their whole job revolves around meeting the needs of the community. Right. And one of the things that Mark points out is that the beliefs, particularly the beliefs about what happens to us after death, is really reflected through the burial process. Which segues nicely into what we learned about the process of embalming. How's that? Well, if you think about the embalming process as something that's representative of our beliefs, then what beliefs does it represent? Hold up. So you're trying to say that there's a connection between a process like embalming and our beliefs? I don't know. Feels like a stretch to me. Yeah, what about someone who just wanted a chance to see the face of a loved one so they could say goodbye? Doesn't that make more sense than this idea of beliefs influencing burial practices? I think that can be a part of it too, but I don't think it's at all a stretch to suggest our beliefs about the afterlife influence burial practice. Mark already said that. 
So what beliefs do embalming represent? So are you going to tell us what you think, or are you just going to keep stringing us along? String you along. Just suspend your disbelief a little bit longer for me. Here's Mark explaining what embalming is. <sighs> We're trained from a public health standpoint that you can't just have anyone handling human remains because there's a significant public health risk there, and that's part of what we do as well. Boom. It's about public health. Case closed. Mystery solved. It's a part of it, for sure. Stick with me, though. Basically what happens is you, you make sure, we call it setting the features, so a person's eyes and mouth are closed, um, they're given a natural appearance. Typically a small incision is made um, and we have an embalming machine that injects embalming fluid through the carotid artery and then uh, blood is drained through the, the jugular vein. Um, there's a, an aspiration process where um, thoracic and abdominal cavity fluids and gases are removed. Uh, the incision is sealed, the person is bathed and cosmetized and any other treatments that need to be made to help them have a, a good appearance. Looks like they're still living or sleeping or... Right. All right, so what's the point here? And maybe just skip the foreplay and go right to your crazy theory. Well, it's a really involved process to preserve the body so that we can see it. Couple that with our metal caskets and concrete, and it's not unfair to say that there's almost an obsession with preservation. So... So maybe it's about our beliefs. Maybe this hope, this idea that we go on and on for eternity, maybe that's reflected in our burial. We do everything to keep the body preserved because on some level, that's what we hope happens after we die. That we're preserved. That we go on forever as ourselves. Real glad you made us wait for this one. And there are alternatives. The funeral home offers alternatives. You don't have to be buried that way. Which is kind of the point, right? That type of burial is the gold standard. It's what most people do. So the question becomes, why? Maybe it is about beliefs. And it doesn't have to be just about beliefs. Clearly, all of these other things are factors too. Public health and getting to see a loved one again before burial. But it only makes sense that beliefs are a factor. And isn't that something worth considering? It seems like there's a lot more options than I expected. I never considered how many factors go into the whole burial process. Yeah, and I think there's a question of what is being valued and what Katrina wants versus what Mark wants. How do you mean? Well, it's like, for Mark, what is paramount is meeting someone's belief system. For Katrina, I think she's saying, how do we make it sustainable? Right, but also I think she's inviting us to reevaluate our beliefs and values when it comes to death. So which factors are the ones that we should be paying attention to? What do you mean? Well... Funerals are such a deeply personal thing, like one of the most personal things you'll experience in life. But with so many things to consider, it's hard to know which one is the right one, you know? So you're talking about the problems that arise from personal choices versus some kind of social responsibility. Yeah, trying to find the balance between personal belief and practice. While still getting meaning out of the process. Okay, I see what you're saying. Katrina puts it really well. On, on the one hand, it's like, well, you know, we, we pollute all our lives. So if you really find meaning in 
conventional burial and you want to pollute one, one last time, I really do think that that's just totally okay and should be allowed. But it's about finding meaning in what we do with our bodies when we die. And so for many of us, that really like doesn't feel right. I think the point of all this is that maybe we shouldn't wait to think about death until we're faced with it head on. So we're not defaulted into conventional death arrangements. And by embracing the underrepresented but equally important stage of the life cycle that is death, maybe we can learn to live and die with meaning. The Looncast is produced and hosted by Ben Thorpe, Phil Russell, Shira Kresh, and myself, Evan Michelonis. Special thanks goes to all the voices who contributed to this episode. Richard Riquetta, Katrina Spade, and Mark Eadley. Here's a thought. If you die right now, you'll be stuck wearing the outfit that you're in for the rest of eternity. Don't make the mistake of looking stupid. Get a Looncast t-shirt and make all the other ghosts super jealous. Also, something we didn't mention in this episode is how the Urban Death Project is completely odor-free. If you'd like to learn more about it, you can visit their website at urbandeathproject.org. That's all for now. See you next time.